following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as the one abnormally born. I don't know exactly why you're here. Of course, many of you are members, covenant members of this particular church. Uh, And I imagine, though, that there are others of you who are here for other reasons. Maybe you're here at the invitation of a neighbor or a friend, uh, perhaps something you saw online. But whatever the occasion uh, that prompted you to come today, I want to just reiterate again that that we are so glad you're here. Um, if, If you're in the category of person who doesn't typically come to church, except maybe on holidays like this. Uh, we, we don't want to scold you or shame you for that. Some churches do that occasionally and say, it's nice to see you this week. We'll see you in a year. That, that's, that's not what we're about here. We, we actually are really grateful that you would come here this morning when there are a thousand other things you could be doing. We're, we're honored by your presence, and we hope that it'll be an encouragement and a blessing to you. And I would even go further and say that, that I am convinced, we, we are convinced that your presence here this morning is evidence of something pretty big in the universe, namely that God loves you. I mean, this, this, as I said, is a perfectly good Sunday for you to be a thousand other places, and yet you're not. You're here. You're here. It's not an accident. It's an appointment. God sees you, God knows you, he loves you, and he wants to work in your heart this morning if you'll simply open your ears and open your heart to him. Maybe you're skeptical about what I've just said, that the thought of some grand purpose behind you being here this morning. I mean, you're pretty, much, you're pretty sure you decided to be here, so what's all this talk about someone behind the scenes orchestrating events? Maybe that seems a little far-fetched to you, but I, I want to challenge you this morning to just suspend your disbelief, your skepticism, your indifference, and to lean in and to lock in and to listen to what God may want to say to you because you may find him to be a God of surprises. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, uh, if it's the multicolored one, you can find this on page 786, or if it's the bright blue one, you can find it on page 545. The book of 1 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament, chapter 15. The New Testament book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth in Greece in the early 50s AD. So that's within about two decades of the events that we're going to be thinking about this morning. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage. Now, the reason I give a main idea 
is not, though it may be tempting, just so you can write it down and tune out for the rest of the message. Uh, the, the reason I give a main idea is to keep myself honest. Uh, in other words, to make sure that the main idea of the message is also the main idea of, a pas- of the passage. If you go to a church in which the preacher treats the Bible like a springboard from which he jumps into all kinds of other things that he feels like talking about, God is not setting the agenda for that church. The preacher is. I don't want to set the agenda for this church because if that's the case, it's not going to be a very helpful place to be. And so what I try to do is I try to make sure that the main idea of God's word becomes the main idea that informs my message. So here's what I think is the main idea of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. The verdict is in. Christ died and rose for sinners. Trust him personally and follow him publicly. The verdict is in. Christ died and rose for sinners. Trust him personally and follow him publicly. We're going to think about this in three points this morning. First, the treasure. Second, the payment. And third, the receipt. The treasure, that's verses one and two. The payment, that's verse three, the beginning of verse four. And the receipt, that's middle of verse four through verse eight. The treasure, the payment, and the receipt. First of all, the treasure. Look there at 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Notice Paul says he's writing to remind them of the gospel, not to inform them, not to introduce them to it for the first time. He says, it's a message you received. I'm reminding you of this message, which you've received and on which you're standing. This imagery shows that the gospel is something that we can examine and enjoy from various angles, like one diamond with many facets. It's something that's proclaimed, which means it's a message. It's something you receive, which means it's a gift. And it's something you can stand on, which means it's a foundation for your life. This good news, this, this gospel, is the announcement, the ringing declaration as we've sung about and prayed about, that God has done everything necessary in the person of his son, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to make us right with himself. It's the good news of Jesus becoming a man and setting us right with God when we were at enmity with him. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, notice that Paul assumes you need to be reminded of this. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, I'm writing to remind you. He assumes you need to be reminded because he knows we're prone to forget. The gospel, and again, I'm speaking to, to Christians here, the gospel is not just content for evangelism. It's also the secret to discipleship. It's been said that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z. Or as J.D. Greer puts it helpfully in his recent book, Essential Christianity, the, the gospel is not the diving board we spring from into other things. It's the very pool in which we swim. 
In a Christian sermon, this, this is one reason why I consider it such a serious stewardship that when I preach from this pulpit that, that I need to include the gospel in every sermon, not as some kind of artificially tacked on thing at the end, but organically woven throughout in accordance with how it's presented in Scripture. And the reason that I believe that's necessary is because without the gospel, it's not a Christian sermon. If I can preach sermons that would receive a warm reception in a Mormon tabernacle or a Jewish synagogue, then those are sub-Christian sermons. A Christian sermon is one that wouldn't make sense unless Jesus died and rose again. But it's not just a message you can receive by faith and stand on. It's also a means of rescue. Look there at verse 2. By this gospel, you are encouraged, taught, edified, helped. No, that, that's all true, but that's all downstream from the much greater word there. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. This note the Apostle Paul is sounding is a sobering one. He's saying that holding firmly to the gospel message indicates that it's actually changed your life. And the implication is that if you don't hold firmly to it, if you don't keep believing and keep persevering in your faith, then it might indicate that you actually never received it. You were never transformed by it. Notice he speaks there of believing in vain. The implication being that there is a such thing. There is such a thing as false faith. The kind of faith that doesn't last. The kind of faith that doesn't result in any life change the Bible says it is not real faith at all. So to just get very specific, maybe uncomfortably specific, this means that you are not automatically good with God if you have merely once upon a time in your life professed faith in him. If you prayed a prayer, signed a card, walked an aisle, threw a pine cone into a fire at a summer camp, Whatever the, whatever the case may be, if, if you have professed to believe in Jesus at some point in your life, but it's made no practical difference in the way you've lived, then the lack of life change might just evidence a lack of real heart change. If you do understand your, yourself to be a Christian, I, I would just simply ask, do verses 1 and 2 describe your life? If you held up 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, like a mirror, and examined your life, your attitude, your thoughts, your words, who you are in public, who you are in private. If you examined your life in this mirror, would you see your own reflection? Would others see your reflection in the mirror? That is, have you not only received this free gift of salvation, but have you staked your life on it? Or as Paul says here, taken your stand on it. That's the language he used, uses. To take your stand on something is by definition public. It's public. So the question is that God's word is, is pressing on us this morning, on you this morning, is not are you willing to live for Jesus in the comfortable privacy of your home? Though that matters. And it can actually be hard to follow Jesus in the comfortable privacy of your home. But Paul is saying, 
No, that's not what it means to stand on the gospel. Are you also willing to live for him conspicuously in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community? If I asked your colleagues about you, your non-believing neighbors and friends, would they say immediately, if I, if, upon hearing your name from a stranger's lips, would they immediately say, oh, he loves Jesus. She, she can't get enough of this gospel she keeps talking about. It's been said that Christianity is personal, but it is not private. That's a helpful way to think about it. Christianity is absolutely personal, but it is in no way meant to be private. If people in your life don't know you're a Jesus follower, if they, in other words, don't know the most important thing about you, then you need to ask yourself if you've been truly transformed by gospel grace or or whether you've just been a religious person and have assumed that the right to privacy extends to your spiritual life. No, someone who's been rescued from their sins and given a new lease on life is too enamored with God's mercy and God's love to keep it to themselves. They want to know Jesus and they want to make him known. The gospel is the treasure. Number two, the payment. The payment. Sometimes a movie will start in the present day, but then flash back to what came before. It's a way of helping us see how we got to this point. And that's similar to how verses 1 and 2 function in relation to verses 3 to 8. So verses 1 and 2 are set in the present day, as it were. Paul is making eye contact with the Corinthian believers and with us, but then he rewinds the clock a couple decades to show us why and how verses 1 and 2 exist how there came to be this message to proclaim, this gift to receive, this foundation to stake your life on. And so he says, hey, this gospel that I'm talking about, I didn't make it up. I'm just delivering the mail. Verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. We should listen up because this is the only time in the whole Bible that this phrase shows up. Friend, if you pick up nothing else from your time here this morning, don't miss this. The Apostle Paul explicitly says, this news that I'm about to tell you, that I'm about to lay out for you, this news is the most thrilling, life-altering thing you could possibly encounter, that you could possibly come to believe. And here's the substance of it. Here's the substance of this breaking news story. Many scholars actually think Paul is now quoting from an ancient uh, creed or hymn that was being circulated among the earliest Christians. And in it, we see, in this brief gospel summary, we see two towering historical events. Two towering historical events, each with an accompanying proof. All right? Two towering events, each with an accompanying proof. Towering event number one, middle of verse three. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
So here we are. This is the white hot center of the Christian faith. Jesus, after living the perfect life that our first parent Adam failed to live, that God's people Israel had failed to live, that you and I have failed to live, he willingly made his way to a Roman cross where he hung in the place of rebels like me and like you. On the cross, Jesus, the Bible says, exhausted the wrath of God satisfied, absorbed the wrath and justice of a holy God. The punishment, in other words, that we deserved. He took the punishment we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. In our cultural moment, it's important to, to understand that Jesus did not die on the cross just to enhance your life, the life you already have. He didn't die simply to boost your self-esteem or simply to set a moral example. No, things were far more grim than that. The stakes were far higher. We wanted his place on the throne. You might have a pretty tame, domesticated view of sin, but, but the Bible says, no, sin is wanting to play God, wanting to be God, wanting to be in charge of your life, wanting to climb up on his throne and topple him off. But the good news of the gospel is that you know how God responds to, say, to us saying, we want to take your place on the throne? He says, no, I actually want to take your place on the cross. It's hard to improve on the words of one theologian, John Scott. He puts it like this, Quote, the concept of substitution. Substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We dare not sanitize this story. I mean, do you, do you see him there with, with the eyes of faith? Can you see him there hanging, suffocating to death, the God-man suffocating to death instead of us, those who have spurned his glory and belittled his worth and yawned at his majesty? And all of it happened, Paul says, according to the scriptures. In other words, this was not plan B. This was always God's plan A. The death of Jesus Christ fulfilled centuries and centuries of anticipation, beginning all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where, where God promised that a descendant of Eve would come and crush the serpent's head. Or Genesis 22, where God spares Isaac's life by providing a substitute. Or the whole Levitical temple system in which priests functioned as mediators and animals as sacrifices to atone for sin, to psalms of rejection and abandonment that Jesus even quotes on the cross, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the prophecy of Zechariah where the Lord says that he will remove, he will take care of sin, deal with it in a single day. I could go on and on. It's like the movie, The Sixth Sense. Once you've seen the end, it totally transforms the way that you understand everything leading up to that point. He died for our sins Remember I said there was an accompanying proof to verify that he really died. Verse four, he was buried. This is Paul's way of saying 
the Son of God was a corpse. The Son of God incarnate was a corpse. His death was public and it was certain the obituary was already off to the printer. But the reason we're here this, this morning, the reason we're here is because the story doesn't end there. Number three, the receipt, the treasure, the payment, and finally the receipt. Middle of verse four. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's that phrase again. Just as his death was anticipated, so was his resurrection, though this one is a little less explicit. You're, you're not going to find an Old Testament verse that says, behold, the Messiah shall rise again on the third day. And yet, it's important to understand this, that there are different ways that the Bible points ahead to Jesus, specifically the Old Testament. There are different ways that the Bible anticipates the coming of Jesus. He fulfills not only direct prophecies, but also unfolding patterns. In an article titled, How the Old Testament Prepares Us for the Third Day, Justin Dillahay writes, quote, In the Old Testament, we find a pattern of God doing big things on the third day. Redemptive things. Revelatory things. And yes, resurrection things. And he ticks off four examples Genesis 22, God spared Isaac by providing a substitute on the third day. Exodus 19, God appears to his people at Mount Sinai on the third day. Hosea 6, God promises a future for his people in exile, saying they'll be raised on the third day. And finally, the story of Jonah, submerged under the floodwaters of God's wrath where he remains for three days. In fact, Jesus himself draws this connection in the gospel according to Matthew. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The article concludes, quote, it should strengthen our faith. It should strengthen our faith faith when we consider that God designed all of history with Jesus at the center, with every third day deliverance pointing directly to him. And then this, but the risen Jesus will not be alone. He is only the first fruits. And someday, figuratively speaking, the third day is coming for us all. See, we get things entirely wrong when we treat Christ's resurrection as some kind of afterthought, an addendum to the gospel story. As Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, without a vacant tomb, there is no Christianity at all. If the death of Jesus Christ was the payment for sin, the resurrection is the receipt. It's God publicly certifying, publicly affirming that the sacrifice on the cross has been accepted as a full payment for sin. With his dying breath, what did Jesus cry out? It is finished. And on day three, the father said, it is indeed. Get up. And just as the burial verifies that he really died, so the appearances verify that he really rose. Verse 5, 
And Jesus appeared to Cephas, that that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all appeared to me, Paul, also, as to one abnormally born. It would be easy to just focus the message only on the death and the resurrection, because those are the two main events. But just as we saw the burial matters because it shows that the Son of God incarnate was truly a corpse, so the appearances matter. The three things I just want to briefly think about with you from this list of people to whom Jesus appeared. Just notice three things. First of all, Jesus didn't appear to one person in a secluded location and say, hey, it's me. Go tell the world. No, that kind of private, mystical encounter is the origin story of a lot of world religions, but not Christianity. Christianity is grounded in history, in events that were decidedly public and repeatedly witnessed. A University of Cambridge scholar named Peter Williams wrote a remarkable little book that I would commend to you if you're a skeptic uh, toward the Bible. It's, it's a little book called, Can We Trust the Gospels? That is, do we have credible reasons for actually believing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were reliably reporting history? Or is it just kind of a blind leap of faith into the dark? And at one point in the book, Dr. Williams, while discussing various evidences for the empty tomb, He lists recorded appearances, recorded appearances of Jesus Christ in Judea, in Galilee, in a town, in a countryside, indoors, outdoors, morning, evening, by appointment, no appointment, on a hill, by a lake, to male groups, to female groups, to individuals, to 500 sitting, standing, walking, eating, talking. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's saying, don't take my word for it. He didn't just appear to me. He appeared in all kinds of places to all kinds of people. The second thing I want you to see is a passing phrase in verse 6. Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Yes, some have died as believers in Christ, but most of that group of 500 are still walking around. This is an apostolic dare. He is daring you as, he's daring the Corinthians to go talk to these people themselves if they don't believe Paul. This this was an ancient way of naming your sources. If you're ever reading through the Gospels and you wonder why so many seemingly random, obscure names are mentioned, it's because that was the ancient way of footnoting things. It was the ancient way of implanting your sources so if people wanted to follow up and do research themselves, they would know who to go talk to. Paul is saying, if you want to investigate the claim that I and other apostles are making, go talk to some eyewitnesses. 
there's hundreds of them still around. The third thing I want you to see is one specific name. Verse 7, then Jesus appeared to James. Do you know who James's parents were? Mary and Joseph. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. <laughs> and if you know anything about the way that the story unfolds during Jesus' earthly ministry, his family didn't really come around easily to this idea that brother Jesus was God. I mean, you probably would have a hard time too if, if your siblings started saying publicly, not just that they're your brother, but also the maker of heaven and earth. Mark 3.20, Jesus' family went to seize him for they said, he is out of his mind. John 7.5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. But something happened to James. Something happened to James that moved him from thinking his half-brother was crazy to becoming a leader in the early church and even writing a book in the New Testament. Do you have a better explanation for that unforeseen transformation in James's life? I mean, imagine the shot to his pride it must have been to admit that his brother was right all along and that all this rabble, all these people that have been following him have been right but that you've been duped. Do you have a better explanation to account for James's transformation other than, besides the events of that first Easter morning? Seeing the impossible, the unthinkable, his crazy half-brother actually pulling off what he'd predicted and getting up from the dead. Guys like him, James, and like Paul. I mean, Paul, we thought about this in recent weeks. His whole identity and status was bound up in stamping out the earliest Christians. Guys like this would have had no incentive, no motivation to make up a hoax. And even if they had, they would have had no reason to persevere, even through persecution to the point of death, being brutally beaten and killed for what they knew was a lie. It makes no sense. I, I just wonder if you're skeptical about the, the resurrection, do you have a, a better explanation for the sudden transformation of the disciples and the birth of the Jesus revolution? I mean, what else could have occurred to pull them out of their hiding places? I mean, you realize when they saw Jesus, it's not like they started high-fiving and wishing each other a happy Easter. They were scared. They were terrified. They couldn't believe it. Thomas, one of them, refused to believe it even after all of his closest friends in the world looked him in the eye and told him Jesus had gotten up from the dead. What else could have occurred to pull them out of their hiding places where they'd fled for their lives and convince them to begin insisting publicly, repeatedly, even to the point of death, Jesus is alive. And no right-minded Jew 
No right-minded Jew would have been disposed to look at a Galilean carpenter from an obscure backwater in the Roman Empire and worship him as Lord of heaven and earth. And yet that's precisely what happened. How else would you account for this change? Well, in conclusion, it would be pastoral malpractice for me to stand up here having talked about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus without being crystal clear about what it means for you. Easter is not just a sweet, sentimental, religious tradition. Easter is a world-altering historical event that demands decision. And the decision is not, do I come to church on Easter? As I said at the beginning, we're, we're grateful you did. But coming to church on Easter is a good thing, but it cannot make you right with God. Coming to church 52 Sundays a year is a good thing, but it cannot make you right with God. What makes you right with him, what enables you to stand completely forgiven? I mean, you, you want to talk about having a burden removed from your shoulders this morning? You can have all of your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. What enables you to stand forgiven and accepted in his holy presence is nothing you have done or ever could do. It happens simply through receiving the treasure, unwrapping the gift, trusting that Jesus the King has already done, as we've said multiple times, everything necessary for you in order to bring you into an intimate relationship with God. Tim Keller, an author and a former pastor in Manhattan, tells the story of when he was at a Christian retreat in college in the early 70s. Uh, the speaker's name was Barbara Boyd, and all these years he, later, he still remembers something she said. If you want to invite me into your house and you say, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd, I wouldn't know what to do because I'm Barbara Boyd. In fact, I couldn't even say, this half is Barbara and this half is Boyd, so I'll just bring this half in because I'm all Barbara and all Boyd. I'm both. So you either get all of me or you get none of me. Then she turned and said to the students, if you say, I would like the loving Jesus, the helping Jesus, the Jesus who can get me through hard times, but I don't want the holy Jesus, the majestic Jesus, the mighty Jesus. In other words, come in, Savior, stay out, Lord, then you get none of him. And then she said, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun were the thickness of a piece of paper, do you realize that our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high? And our galaxy is just a speck of the universe. The Bible says Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. She said Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. And then she looked, smiled, and said, Do you ask someone like that into your life to be your assistant? Friend, the Lord Jesus Christ is not someone you can remain indifferent toward. No offense, but he is overqualified to be your assistant. 
Either he's dead and it's all a hoax, or he's alive and your life can never be the same. There are other decisions you can delay. Other cans you can kick down the road, not this one. This is, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. The day you can begin a brand new relationship with the God who made you and who loves you and is holding out mercy to you if you will simply bow your knee to him in faith. You have no way of knowing that you have any more Easter's left on your calendar. Why not make this the day that you enter into a relationship with King Jesus? And if you do, if you receive this gift, if you embrace this treasure, then you will have a foundation to stand on that will never give way. The verdict is in. King Jesus died and rose for sinners like me and like you. Trust him personally and follow him publicly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your only begotten son to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to rise again so that if we trust him, we can have confidence that one day we too will rise right along with him in resurrected bodies fit for a renewed earth. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross and for your resurrection that is a giant receipt that reads, paid in full. Guard us from apathy. Guard us from indecisiveness about the most thrilling and important message we will ever hear. It's in the beautiful name of your son we pray. Amen.